He saw the tale as old as time. He was sipping from Chip the cup. He was watching Beauty and the Beast and knowing it was a tale as old as time. And I, when I saw that, I went, this dude is legend. Wait for it. Dare I'm not doing it. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. You ever see Beauty and the Beast? Yeah. What is your number one memory from that iconic film? The singing uh, dishes. Yes. And there was one dish, a tea kettle. Teacup, yeah. as it were. Called Chip, right? No, yes, yes. But Angela Lansbury played the kettle, I think, or whatever. Whatever the teapot, maybe? Whatever it's called. Yeah, that was like Chip's mom, I think. Yeah. Tale as old as time is what she was singing. We're going to get to that in a moment. <laughs> that's get to that in a moment. That's, that, that is... that's bankrupts. We live in a world of bankrupts. <laughs> exactly. I, by the way, gosh. Okay. I can't wait to get there. Oh, man, I can do it. All right, we're going to talk something first. Yeah, we're going to talk uh, something first. Before we even get into that, though, we got to do our, our our regular, please go rate and review the podcast. We love your listener mail. Got a bunch this week. We'll kind of cover it throughout because it was generally all about all the things. <laughs> so not separate. Um, but we'll hit on that. Skippydoogles at gmail.com. That's listener mail. Yeah, and shout out. We had some uh, requests for stickers. Uh, last week i'm out of stickers we have 200 more in the mail so if you need a sticker hit us up and we'll get those out to you in the next couple of weeks as soon as they arrive uh thanks for that stickers going international now all right, right. <laughs> this is just the internet does what the internet do and what the internet do this week is twitter changes policy around verification to an $8 a month subscription plan to have blue check marks. And the Twitter sphere said, we see you, Elon. We see you. And this is what we're going to do. So I'm just going to hit on a few. If you have others, throw them in here. But hit on a few of these impersonations. Because what happened was people got the, the quote-unquote like official blue check mark, which is what this represented in the past, and then used that to then change the names or create new uh, like seemingly official Twitter accounts for brands and people and then started tweeting out things that just uh, were sometimes obviously ridiculous and sometimes didn't necessarily seem as ridiculous as others. Yeah. So. And a little background. So if you're not a Twitter user, the powerful thing about Twitter is that it's become this trusted, it's almost like this media relations platform that the world trusts. And these check marks became like, if Eli Lilly and company or Google or whoever, or the prime minister of France or the defense secretary of Ukraine has a check mark next to their name, you can basically trust at least two weeks ago, you could, that what they were saying was true. So that ingrained behavior makes it so when someone creates an Eli Lilly and company and pays $8 a month to get the check mark and then announces that we've we're excited to announce that insulin is now free which is a hilarious press release assuming it was impersonating the company the company loses four percent of its value uh minutes after that happens simply because an impersonator read true so um some of this stuff is kind of sad i think the right approach is to sit back and chuckle because elon is having a time over there at twitter right yeah exactly and you got so you got everything to your point, right? Uh, there's a fake LeBron James account called King James with a Z, King James yeah. with a Z that requested a trade from the Lakers, right? So that's like on the, I don't know, that's humorous like side. the playful, yeah, yeah. like the, the playful humorous side. Um, you had like Nintendo um, that got the impersonation. But then one, one I enjoyed also on the humorous side was um, Chiquita Banana. So... <laughs> <laughs> So the fake, the fake Chiquita Banana account said, we've just overthrown the government of Brazil. This was one. So it's funny, right? Because it's ridiculous. Yeah. But 
what was strange for me was when I first saw it, I was like, that could be possible. Like there, there was a part of me that was like, that, that one, given the state of affairs right now, that one could be possible. The one you mentioned before, Eli Lilly and company came well, out. No, on Chiquita, uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think it's another impersonated account, but I, I, it was impossible to keep track. There was another one that says, sorry, the previous tree is not true. We haven't overthrown the government since 1954, which also made me chuckle. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. There, there you go. Uh, you mentioned Eli Lilly and company. So the, their fake account came and said, we are excited to announce insulin is free now. And this is the one that took billions of dollars off of Eli Lilly's yeah. um, market cap, like right away. And also there were a couple other like drug companies that came out uh, and sparked, I can't say sparked some controversy because there's been controversy for a while around uh, insulin, but like reignited some folks being like, it should be free. Rudy Giuliani, uh, this is another where you kind of go, this could be real, <laughs> or but it's it's probably obviously not. Uh, the fake Rudy W. Giuliani came out. I stand with Kyrie Irving and Kanye West because George Soros once pushed me down the street and I was stuck on my back like a turtle for several minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's You said maybe that could be true. You're just full of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... And the last, and this is this is where it starts to get a little like, uh, like there were some. I'm not going to say some of them because they were like, they crossed the line too much in my mind. This was a, a quasi borderline for one for me. Uh, there was a fake OJ that came out, and basically, I won't even read the tweet, but finally admitted what was going on. Um, okay. But that 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 was one. That's where it starts to. And then there were some ones that got real dark, real quick. So we won't. But go do a little googleation. And just type in blue Twitter checkmark impersonators. You'll find some stuff. Uh, some's humorous. Ignore some others. But found that to be something on the Twitter sphere slash internet this week. That was enjoyable. So wanted to kick that off. All right. Yeah. But the thing everybody wants to talk about. Yeah. Is Let's FTX. give the people what they want. Let's give right. the people what they um, want. Okay. So I'm going to throw a curveball your way. We didn't talk about this in the pre-show meeting. You know who never gets props and needs some props this week? The government, all right? Why, why, why am I talking about the government? We have things like the uh, Securities and Exchanges Act that came out in 1933 and other regulations that have put in place. FDIC insurance, smart regulation of banking institutions in this co company that have effectively taken bank runs and made them a thing of the past, right? In the 80s, there was a a huge savings and load crisis. You've had small banks going out of business left and right in a way you kind of had bank runs, bank runs. One of my favorite movies is It's a Wonderful Life, which is all about bank runs. Bank runs. I don't know why I can't talk today. This is, the FTX thing is effectively a bank run in a place where there's no regulation and you see what happens when people are left to their own devices. Right? And to, to, to jump jump tale in for a moment. Time. Yeah, tale as old as time. To jump in for a moment, just on the, the quick definition of bank run, just to make sure we're all on the same page, is when consumers or other investors or folks that have money in something basically charge uh, into that establishment in the physical world of banks or here the digital world to say, give me my money. Like, I want my money. And it happens yeah. so aggressively that there is a concern for liquidity. Yes. So I, I don't know how deep in the weeds we're going to go with FTX. And it's important to pull it back because uh, there's a lot of unknowns right now. But another core tenet of the U.S. banking system and the good banking systems around the world is you don't you put a, a huge wall between trading and investing, uh, trading and investing arm of a financial institution and a banking arm. Right. Every time there that wall hasn't existed. There's been all sorts of trouble where the bank effectively loses their client's money. Because if people don't know, the sim in the simplest sense, the bank takes my money. It lends my money to someone else. It can't lend out too much of that money because other customers are going to come and ask for those redemptions. This is what we're talking about at a high level. So there's all these liquidity ratios. And important things to make sure that the bank can actually make a profit, which is what they're in business to do, while protecting their consumers. What happened at FTX is 
the worst of the worst. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, agreed. And and uh, I don't know if you were going to, but can we give some like loose history and context as to what FTX is before diving in to what happened? Is that cool? Yeah, I'm happy I'll let to. you start with yeah. that. It is really so complex that you look back on this basically crypto hedge fund that's directly tied to FTX, the exchange, and all the other entities that Sam Bankman fried the CEO, has put his finger on. And it, again, hindsight's 2020, but you just go, oh my yeah. goodness, this was incredibly risky and set up to fail. Agreed. Let's back it up. Let's back yeah. it up. Okay. So cryptocurrency, we've talked about a good amount. Bitcoin is the one that people know the most, but there are like lots out there. What what One of the entities you were talking about is Alameda Research. And Alameda Research was founded by a couple folks, don't remember the other guy's name, but Sam Bankman Freed or Fried uh, is the, the main protagonist in this story, turned antagonist, but anyway. So Alameda Research was founded in 2017, so five years ago, to trade Bitcoin. Like it was basically a Bitcoin, why can't I think of the word, taking advantage arbitrage shop. of arbitrage. Yeah, so there you go. Their first and trading mechanism was... Um, you know, the crypto world is the wild, wild west, and there's all these different exchanges all over the world. And some of those exchanges would trade Bitcoin at 20 bucks or $20,000 per coin. And another one in another place might be trading at 23 because they weren't efficient. So back in 2017 and even earlier, there was easy arbitrage opportunities where you could just buy Bitcoin in one place, sell it in another and make a profit. I think that's how they got started when there's when there's no developed markets in the crypto space right or very few there's easy arbitrage opportunities because it was inefficient exactly and so let's fast forward a couple of years so that was 2017 that was founded there was an offshoot of that which is ftx which stands for futures trading exchange and this was founded in 2019, and it's kind of like a Coinbase. Just think about it like Coinbase. It's a crypto exchange where people can buy and sell cryptocurrencies. That's the background. That's FTX. That's who we're talking about. We can start diving into the nonsense from many different angles. I'm going to throw out a couple of the points that like get me going, and then I'd love to hear what gets you going. This company has raised roughly $1.8 billion, from what I could tell, in total. It raised money earlier this year at a $32 billion valuation. And I can't figure out how, with $1.8 billion, it did the stuff that it did. Like I'm reading, so I look that up and I see the $1.8 billion. And then I see, I'm going to use the word flamboyant here, although it's hard to like describe somebody as flamboyant who's walking around in a t-shirt and a hoodie, but still the flamboyance, the, the spending of Sam Bankman, Freed fried. He was spending money on things like acquisitions. I, I saw $1.5 billion in acquisitions, a $30 million luxury apartment that he and nine of his coworkers lived in, bought yeah. the naming rights for Miami Heat Arena, got like Super Bowl commercials, all this stuff. So I'm like, how do you, you have $1.5 billion in acquisitions? I'm reading about these like hundreds of millions of dollars that you're like lending or supporting folks with. Like, I, I, I like couldn't figure out how the money adds up. One of the biggest um, donors to the Democratic Party for this election cycle. Uh, endorsement deals with folks like Tom Brady, Steph Curry, uh, you name it. Amazing hubris here in terms of spending like there was an unlimited pool of funds, right? Again, in retrospect, it's also clear. I remember you almost can't talk about FTX without talking about the rest of the crypto world because for... The last six months, 12 months, people have talked about this, this current crypto winter, which is their way of saying prices is cooled and, and things consolidate, companies fail. And so during this latest crypto winter, FTX was the one that was aggressively buying other crypto firms that were failing, right? And gave this appearance of everyone else is in trouble. Every, you know, when the Luna crash happened, or there's all these other small players. Every time they got into a liquidity crunch, Sam and FTX comes in and says, oh, I'll buy you. I have plenty of liquidity. Everything's great. That creates this um, kind of rival 
with one of the other largest Bitcoin exchanges in the world called Binance. And but, I, but yes, yeah. and Binance was originally a friend. So but like, like all these crypto, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. this is how it so, works. So Sam, and we, we're, this is a, this is, as you mentioned, this is a complex story with many different parts. And so apologies, we're like jumping around a bit, but it, it's as you're reading through, as I was reading through at least, like different articles and looking at Crunchbase to look at their funding. I'm trying to piece together all these different pieces. So when uh, FTX was founded, Alameda Research, FTX was founded, it was overseas. Uh, they were in Hong Kong. And like down the hall at the WeWork was this company called Binance. Yep. And so when, when FTX was spun out from Alameda Research, uh, Binance invested in FTX, get it off the ground. And got it. I, I, they had about twenty percent of the company. I don't know if that was their initial stake or that's what it ended up being after a few rounds of financing. But so you're you're right in mentioning the rivalry. But to start, they were friendlies trying to get you know rising tide raises all boats kind of thing. And so they were an investor in FTX. All right, continue. Well, and, and so where this when you can create billions of dollars out of thin air, it gives you this uh, sense of confidence that. That you're kind of invincible, I think. So one of the things happening within FTX is they create their own token. This token is called FTT. I'm looking at a graph here of the market cap of FTT. In 2021 and 2022, the market cap is somewhere between six and nine billion dollars. So Sam Bankman-Fried obviously gets to benefit from creating a token that has a nine billion dollar market cap, and that's how he finances some of his acquisitions that's core to the capitalization structure of ftx right on top of that you just mentioned they raised funding at a 32 billion dollar valuation so when the highs are high this guy and his company basically created let's just call it 30 billion plus dollars out of thin air and he's going this is easy like I've solved all the world's problems. This is where he has our boy Jim Kramer calling him the JP Morgan of this generation. I mean, Jim has had a tough year. Can we just take a moment of silence for Jim? He has called everything wrong. Well, he was talking about Julius Principalitus Morgan, who's a completely different (laughs) JP Morgan. Must have been. Must have been. All right. So, so, right. He does some good work. He creates a company that is the envy of new finance, DeFi, whatever it is. And has $30 billion worth of wealth. And because he feels strong and well capitalized, he buys every other ugly duckling in the space, right? And then what happens, Dougals? Oh, and so then let's let's go back a little bit. When Dougals was looking at, as you were just mentioning, Dougals was saying they've raised this amount of money, but they're spending this amount of money. Yeah. And the revenues don't make up the difference. Where's that money coming from? And you have already alluded to it, where you you said they they had the market cap of this coin that they'd put out there. So speculation, allegedly, right? But you have this money. There is money available. And November 2nd, 2022, Coindesk comes out with an article that says that there are $5.1 billion of FTT tokens, because cryptocurrency had come down, right, in circulation. And Alameda which you all remember Alameda very closely tied to FTX Alameda had they had nearly yeah. all like nearly all of that 5.1 billion dollars was owned by FTX's sister company yes then what happens well it, there's there's really so much here on top of that he has 10 billion dollars in customer deposits in his crypto exchange which there's also speculation that when the hedge fund side, which is the Alameda side, or the I don't know what they're even calling it, quantitative investing side, whatever, when they get into trouble because they obviously weren't trading profitably, they were trading at a loss because they were they there's some speculation they were trying to be a loss leader to create markets, which was thought of as a positive thing for FTX long term, that you pull some money over from the your client funds. Which is a terrible, Ooh. terrible idea, and something that's not allowed in yeah. in a the U.S. banking system or any developed world. So you pull some of that over, you might be pulling some of the money from your FTX token. Now there's this guy out here, your old friend of Binance, who says, 
Hold, oh. hold up. Hold up. Before okay. you get to the gangster move, because you're about to yeah. define the gangster move, before you get to that, I want to give one other detail that I skipped over before. So I mentioned that Binance had invested in FTX early on, got about a 20% stake. But roughly a year ago, they I'm going to skip the minutia. They effectively converted that 20% stake into FTT. So they are now a material holder of this token. Okay, now get to the gangster move. Dude comes out and says, I have 500 million of your token. And and Dougal's just articulated that he might be the only person outside of FTX <laughs> that has a significant portion of this token. He says, that's trash and I'm selling it all. And when that happens, FTX token goes from a market cap of maybe $3.5 billion to a market cap as we record to about half a million dollars, which is probably all held internally. Like I, I think basically everyone's yep. jumped this thing and called it worthless. That's step uh, one so, of three steps of the gangster move. What's step two? Well, I'm not even, I'll let you jump in on step two. Here's, here's the thing that just happened with that one move is you have $3 billion less to work with. It's not, it's actually not that easy, but that leads to a people wondering your clients, your customers, your stakeholders going, wait, what just happened here? And is my money safe? Nobody was wondering. This is going back to your point. There was a bank run. There was a run on the token. Nobody was sitting around wondering. There was a $6 billion run on FTT, which caused a material liquidity crisis. I'm going to hit yep. step two. So step right. one, Binance sells a token. Step two, Binance comes and says, ooh, you got liquidity issues? Why don't we talk about us purchasing you to give you a backstop? So then, then FTX, Sam, was able to come out into the market and be like, all's good with the world. We've got this letter of intent. They believe what we believe. Crypto is going to the moon. You know, all yeah. love and, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. That's step two in the gangster move. Well, okay. It, in that, in the step two phase, this is what happens in a bank run. They put this little banner on the top of their website or their app that says withdrawals are currently not we have paused withdrawals withdrawals are not like we're fine we're well capitalized one for one bunch of lies this has happened a hundred times in crypto in the past 12 months and then angela what happens after that <laughs> what happens after that is angela lansbury so after that the next day so this is all, by the way, this, this period, remember I mentioned November 2nd as when this article came out? So this is in the last like week or so that this is all happening. So it's like each day was a new, a new beginning. So then a day after this letter of intent was announced, Binance came out and said, actually, nah. That was the whole press release. It said, actually, nah. What they stated was that I'm going to call it there was some funny business that seemed like it was going on. The way they put it out was they found a mishandling of customer funds, and that's why they backed out. And that got Gary Gensler real excited. SEC chairman, sorry. I mean, but so this is, uh, it is really a gangster move. This is like from The Godfather. The guy at Binance figured out what was happening and called the bluff, and then uh, Fake swooped in and did the rescue and in doing that said, oh, when I opened up the books, it's worse than I ever imagined effectively. And they're done. Amazing, amazing gangster move. And my thing, so the person that runs Binance, CZ is what I remember him by. I can't remember the full name. Yeah, Some, that's something Zhao. But CZ, he goes by CZ. I've been thinking this dude was a legit gangster for a bit because, I, you know, I don't follow crypto all that closely. But whenever I would whenever something would come up around him, he'd be like, it seems like authorities are trying to find me, but I'm just in my home watching Simpsons. Like you know, he, he would like come out with these tweets that were just like, if you want me, just come to get me. I'm at 655 North Rodeo drive or whatever. So yeah. anyway, it was, I thought that was gangster. Then he made these three, this three-step, two-step, three-step gangster move here. Then the creme de la creme for me was, cause this is like Prussian Angela Lansbury again. 
there's this quote from him from June. So this was five months ago. Quote from him from June. He comes out and says, it was not easy saying no to Super Bowl ads, stadium naming rights, large sponsor deals a few months ago. But we did. Which was a full dig on what he saw his boy Sam doing five months before all this nonsense. Right. He saw the tale as old as time. He was sipping from Chip the Cup. He was watching Beauty and the Beast and knowing it was a tale as old as time. And I, when I saw that, I went, this dude is legend. Wait for it. Dare I'm you. not doing it. I'm not <laughs> you doing should have. I'm waiting You're for you to it. do it. Anyway, it. I was like, this is I'm really curious about this got me so curious about Binance now um, that it's it's kind of fascinating. Oh, I mean, PSA, let's not pretend that Binance doesn't have some of these same challenges. Oh, yeah. It's uh, unregulated, yeah. wild, wild west. Yes, it is. Um, man, it's it's sad in a way. I think a lot of people are going to be impacted. There's at least a billion dollars of client funds that are missing. Um, this has turned into a big old mess. But, yeah. oh, so are you a Shark Tank fan? I used to watch it all the time, actually. I used to watch, but it's been years been a few years yeah i'm kind of the same i feel like it might have been cool a decade ago i'm sure it's still entertaining our boy kevin o'leary mr anti-wonderful if i got it give him a nickname. <laughs> um apparently was a big stakeholder in ftx and man these clips that are going around of him sticking his foot in his mouth are incredible if you want to entertain yourself for 15 minutes do that one is where he says he's so excited about the crypto space but he knows that the bottom won't have arrived until a major player goes to zero. Well, it turns out that major player that just went to zero was the one he was backing. So <laughs> good, good for you, Kevin. <laughs> Another is where he goes on this long diatribe that says Sam Bankman frieds parents are compliance lawyers and, you know, that's the Stanford crowd and everything else. So if there's one port, one company in his portfolio that he has no stress and he's not worried about having any issues with it's ftx not so good man no not so good and this this is the extreme of what you always talking about having a cash backstop right how important that is a week ago as our our boys in the hip-hop world like to say it was all good just a week ago a week ago sam woke up a 12 billionaire he was worth 12 yep billion dollars today he wakes up a zero billionaire i mean he's With, worth a lot less than zero in my opinion that's, and that's true he's uh he's got to be looking at a jail cell it, not to be mean or i mean i just don't know how you avoid when, when you hear about some of these things coming out a, a lot of it's just outright fraud it in my uneducated opinion yeah it's it uh this is not taken away from any of that because yes i agree period full stop and i'm sure for some of these folks it doesn't feel like fraud while they're doing it yeah but oh, it I, is it is uh, the little i've seen of him i don't think he had no this is why tale of as old as time is really important like i don't think he's a bad guy i don't think he was trying to manipulate his customers funds I think he thought he was the smartest guy in the room and thought that none of the fallacies that have happened in banking for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years, applied to him because the, it was this brand new place. Well, what's insane is he made all the mistakes that everyone else has made when money was called stones or dollars or pounds or like crypto didn't it was not a safeguard here. It just yeah. allowed people to make the same human mistakes that they always make. And if there's one big takeaway from crypto, it's okay. Maybe, maybe there is something to this, but you need all the regulations that humankind has developed to protect us from ourselves. Otherwise you're a world. Yeah. Preach. Where do you want to go next? What's in your fishbowl? Also, uh, we got to talk about Bitcoin. You can see the smile on my face over here. <laughs> on this podcast, one of the things we do and hopefully do well is we always remind you of what's been happening historically 
and that these opportunities come around. So we did this with Zoom communications, right? It, uh, right after COVID, it went to the moon and then it came back to earth. And when it came back to earth, we said, hey, if you really uh, were sad about missing out on Zoom, you could buy it for the same price now. We've been talking about this with some of the companies that have fallen drastically like Meta. Well, Bitcoin, currently maybe $17,000 per coin. But, oh man, the hyenas in the streets have made it even worse. So, Dougals, there are exchange-traded funds, which think of that as like a mutual fund, that trade Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Because back two years ago, that was the hottest buzz. So, two years ago... People wanted to get Bitcoin in their 401k so badly that those funds traded at a premium. Meaning, if I had $100 worth of Bitcoin in that ETF, the demand to buy that ETF was so great that people were paying $150 for it and effectively throwing $50 out the window. What's happening now is the exact reverse. Some of these funds are trading at a 40% discount to so-called true value. Now, Dougals, I know you think true value for Bitcoin is $0. It, it probably, I mean, maybe it is, but if you're one of those people two years ago when Bitcoin was at 60K going, man, if this thing ever gets to $10,000, you could effectively buy it for $10,000 if you're smart about doing it because it's current trading price is 16, 17, whatever. And there's funds out there that are trading at a 40% discount to net asset value. It's called NAV, um, which just means... If you're buying $17,000 worth of Bitcoin, you get a 40% deduction on that. So I find that incredibly fascinating. I don't anticipate ever having more than 1% to 2% of crypto in any of my investments. But yeah, this is your opportunity, guys. If you were incredibly bullish at 60K and you think it's going to a million bucks in two decades, you can buy the thing for 10K right now, effectively. You know, I think this is a bunch of nonsense. Academically, academically, what you're saying is sure. I mean, you know, I have nine cents of crypto, yeah, in my account. I don't know what percent that is. At one point, that nine cents was ten dollars. <laughs> I now have nine cents of crypto in my account. All right, I, I, I don't. I just go back to like the Buffett hamburgers quote. Uh, I love equities that have a cash backstop. That's been well documented on the show. I'm putting my free capital to stocks that I think are incredible deals right now, which we can talk about on another show. But if you're the type of person, I just, it's just a PSA. If you're like, Bitcoin at $10,000 a coin is the biggest deal on earth. Well, that opportunity exists. It's out there. It's yours to take. <laughs> All right. I'm going to reach into the fishbowl. <laughs> and this is a quick follow-up kind of actually to something we talked about last week. So last week, I mentioned the Basecamp uh, founder, DHH, co-founder, DHH, and how he was uh, discussing uh, Elon Musk and the need to reinvigorate Twitter, shake things up. But he didn't agree with the, like, the working philosophy uh, that Elon had. Elon sent an email to Twitter employees this past week, which flexed on two of those dimensions that DHH said he did not believe in. Yeah, I think I think Elon scheduled this. I think he actually wrapped it up at 502, went to have dinner <laughs> yeah, with his exactly. family. <laughs> exactly. So the first flex, and by the way, this was the first email that Elon had sent to the company since he bought the company. So the first email that Elon sends is sent at 2.39 a.m. Yep. That's flex. all employees. Yeah, that flex is the flex of like, if you don't read this right when I send it, then you aren't working hard enough. He did not say that, but that is, that is, that's that flex. The second flex is he says that starting tomorrow, and I don't know if this, tom- when it's 2.39 a.m., it's very confusing. Like, you got you to gotta be real specific. Yeah, I think he means um, Friday because it was a Thursday morning. Okay. But I can guarantee you some people woke up, were planning on working from home, and managed to get into the office because, sorry to cut you off there, but one of the things it said is, get into the office in person for at least 40 hours a week starting tomorrow. Yeah. No. <laughs> 2.30 yeah. in the morning. It takes me back to, there was a Simpsons episode back in the nineties where Homer was supposed to pick up Bart from soccer practice, but he forgets. And Homer's taking a shower. Like he's in the shower bathing himself. And then he remembers 
and just runs out of the house like towel of flinging behind him. Right. And then Flanders goes, hey, homie, I can see your doodle. Anyway, it reminds me of that because I picture somebody waking up and being like, like he, he, in no uncertain terms, starting tomorrow, employees have to be in the office at least 40 hours per week, like starting tomorrow, tomorrow. Right. Um, and he's OK with exceptions. But he personally has to review every yeah. exception that comes through. How intimidating is that? Like, how much do you think about your exception if you have to send it to this person that's sending out an email at 2.39 a.m.? So, no, that there's um a flex there, which is really like, it says like, I'm totally fine with, uh, I, I think he mentions health and other exceptions, but I will review them personally, which basically says, don't you dare even ask for an exception to this policy because I am or was recently the world's richest man. I own three or four massive and successful companies. You want to use my personal time to look at a review of this policy that I just enacted? Like, not happening. Incredible flex there. So that's a quick little hit on that one. Wanted to shout that out because it was a a follow-up to last week. Anything else you want to hit on that before I go into the topic that I really want to touch on? I mean, I want your take on one thing. Uh, one of the key sentences, he says, the road ahead is arduous and will require intense work, work to succeed. He talks about advertisers abandoning the, plat- abandoning the platform and the difficulty in making money. Like, this is a company that has turned a profit before. Why is he grandstanding almost? Like, he cut costs by roughly half because the majority of their costs are employees and he laid off half the employees. It it doesn't seem impossible to make a profit with this company to me. Am I just missing something? Yeah, you are. You're missing something. <laughs> You're missing something because Elon didn't include this something in the email. He says more, moreover, 70% of advertising is brand rather than specific performance, right? He didn't mention that he has ruined that brand over the past week and advertisers are fleeing, which then has led to this dire situation. That's my point, actually. That That's like, yes, is it dire because you made it dire in the last like 96 hours? I, <laughs> it, maybe, but but there's no maybe. mention of that. It's like, oh, th- this we're so challenged and I need your help. Not to mention the fact that I took my flamethrower to our reputation. This could be accidental. And I also wouldn't be surprised if he's doing all this stuff on person or on purpose. You know, like his management by chaos philosophy oh, where he's, he's just it's scripted. He's just like, I'm gonna throw like everything is just gonna be in flux. Yeah, okay. Anyway, moving on. All right. You sent over this article, blog post, whatever it is, this week that I want to hit on. And it's about the monetization of stock-based compensation on Epsilon theory. I'll give a little background. And then I don't know if they're going to be some fireworks or not, but I'd like to have this discussion with you. Context in this piece, which I think is, is well, well-written context, first starts off with some things we talked about before. There are five ways to use company cash. You can expand your operations, right? Invest in your business. Number two, you can pay down debt. Number three, you can give the pat the cash back to shareholders as a dividend. Number four, you can do some mergers and acquisition, right? Buy another company. And five, you can buy back your own shares. So it lays that out. Well, to give some context, so the article starts with, hey, I'm a shareholder in this company, which means I'm an owner in this company. If this company has free cash flow at the end of the year, here are the five things they can do with it. And here's how me, and this is not me, but the person writing this article says, I like for you to handle that because I own your company. So I wanted to set that context. Go ahead. That's good context. So this guy loves buybacks for reasons we've talked about before, right? We've discussed like it it shrinks the share count. So therefore, like you're reverse diluting the company. Um, You don't get hit with the same taxes that you get hit with like a dividend. So as a shareholder, if someone, if a company is operating well and using their cash effectively, this can be a like a, a rewarding use of cash for shareholders. So really likes that. Then he introduces this concept that he calls sterilization, which is a 
weaponized term, uses this concept <laughs> called sterilization, which he defines as when a company does share buybacks, but it's buying back from its employees. I'm like, all right, okay. You know, I get this. Let, let's keep going. Let's keep riding. Uh, and, uh, to provide a little context there, some companies, let's say Dougal's and I have a, a company, it's public. Um, we we think we're the best podcast hosts in the world. So we want to give ourselves a million dollars worth of stock every at the end of every year, right? So that shows up in our stock-based compensation. And then what we do is we go to the street, we go to our podcast listeners and we go, guys, such a good gear for the podcast. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to buy back $2 million worth of shares. It's going to be great. That's going to be better for you guys as an investor. And why he says sterilization is he's like, just look at the total picture here. They just gave themselves 2 million bucks and then they claim they're buying back 2 million bucks. But effectively what they're just doing is just giving themselves 2 million bucks, right? That's what he's saying. Where I start to take issue, and I'll give some of the figures here, where I start to take issue is he says, you can do this buyback thing from employees in a responsible way, or you can do it in an irresponsible way. And he compares three different publicly traded organizations to make this point. Yeah. Meta, Google as the villains in the story, and Apple as the angelic creature and the, <laughs> <laughs> the protagonist of the story. And to give you some figures, for Meta, for Meta, says the total capital over the last 10 years that Meta has returned to shareholders as a percent of free cash flow is 0%. For Google, 5.1%. For Apple, 91.9%. In a different graph, he looks at the percent sterilization, buyback sterilization percentage, and says Meta's is 100% of its buybacks went to sterilization. Google, 90.2%. Apple, 12.4%. Yeah. Okay, there are more stats like this. The whole point is that Meta and Google are diluting shareholder ownership, Apple's being beneficial. Well, My, oh, sorry, go. No, I mean, when I look at making an investment here, I, I, I don't care about any of the sterilization or any of the nonsense. I just look at total share count, growth or shrinkage. And it comes out in the wash if you do that. So like- I thought he got too deep in a, in the rabbit hole here to throw some shade at Meta and Google when you don't really have to. You just have to say like, hey, is this company issuing a bunch of new shares? If so, they're not an invest great investment for me. Yeah, and hits on that point too. Says Meta's total share count has increased by 12.4%. Google has decreased by 1.2%. Apple's decreased by 37.9% over the past 10 years. So to your yeah, so point- what's your, also, what's your beef? I feel like you have beef. Yeah, my beef, well, I'm vegetarian, but my beef, my beef is the selection of companies. This is overly simplistic, but if you look at, if you look at the life cycle of an organization, you, like you have to take into account where an organization is in its life cycle. I don't know if this changes this or not, but to me, it was like an obvious thing. When you choose, he chose a 45 year old ish company, a 24 year old company. Yeah. And an 18 old company and said they're spending their cash in different ways. Like if you just if you really just zoom out, they and, should be. And and one makes the most of their cash through um physical devices, like sales of iPhones. So like, I just I agree the whole with that thing. point. Yeah. Like the academically I didn't. It's like academically it makes sense. But if you chose these examples, I'm curious as to what like Adobe looks like. Like if you want to compare someone to Apple, and I don't know, right? It, and it, but like, I'm curious, uh, Adobe was founded closer to like when Apple was founded. It's been around for, right? But I'd want to look at uh, an older stock in technology that is a growth stock and then compare apples to apples. Because the story that I see here is Meta being the youngest, Google in the middle, Apple, is that, yeah, Meta, according to these stats, is worse than Google, is worse than Apple. And I go, that's logical. Like, like that just actually makes perfect sense to me. And if you probably looked at Google a decade ago or so, it probably looked closer to what Meta is. Like that's my that's my guess. I might be wrong, but like it, it seems to ignore like that whole point, which means that you can't be a growth stock investor. Like this person could not do that because they can't wrap their brain around the trajectory. I don't know that to be um, a fact because I don't know no, this person. Yeah, but... 
that that's well who cares about that let's talk about me personally i don't mean i don't mean that in a bad way i don't mean i don't i just mean i don't care about his investing yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. approach uh, here's my takeaway watching shared dilution is an important part of any investment thesis even even Dougal's, if you're comfortable in the growth space, like you don't want your company just blowing that away, no, and diluting no, their yep. share count ridiculously. Um, but understanding at what cycle, what stage of growth they're in, that uh, dilution of shares might be more important to their, I'll call it their fundraising, their capitalization structure. Um, and so that can be part of the game. I agree. Academically, this all made sense to me. I just lost confidence with the the choices that were made here right we were talking about we've talked off pod but also i think i mentioned it last pod that stock-based compensation is raises a a question mark should, that should be paid attention to and a stock that i enjoy twilio right like i it's a, it's a real yeah. thing you should pay attention to this stuff it's just the way this was laid out i think is depending on the type of investor i know you're ignoring that but it's like it's really meaningful. Like if, if you if you have a somebody that's like all buying all the cryptos and all the zooms and all the, so Kathy Wood. All right. If you take Kathy Wood, you could see Kathy Wood might write a blog post that is talking about how ridiculous it is to like not have certain return on equity like metrics and how yeah. like how how can these stocks not have like revenue growth of XYZ? And I'm gonna compare and the name, I'm gonna compare this grocery store in Pennsylvania to like Cloudflare to, and you go, whoa, hold on. <laughs> like you, you don't seem to understand like the core of how these types of companies work is like the, is, is my issue. That's all. The, the grocery store in Pennsylvania, which I own is called Weissmeyer and uh, I'm up 30% this year. So yeah, exactly. How you Kathy. like that Dougals? Huh? How you like that? <laughs> I, 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 don't look at the rest of my portfolio. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know. It, it's just interesting to me. I thought you'd like it. Clearly, I ruffled some feathers, but um, we're we're on the we're on board oh, yeah. with the high level concept. I, yeah, I actually do like it. I think this is worth a read, and we'll put it on the uh, Substack on Monday. It's definitely worth a read. I just had issue with the uh, with the examples there, but it's still the, the concepts are really important for people to grasp. Well, and I think some early investors or novice investors might not even realize that company can issue more shares and dilute your ownership in that company. So. If that's news to you, spend a little time reading about that because it's an important thing to know. Um, but it's not always well known. All right. So if we go to my fishbowl, the one thing I want to do, I want to talk about WeWork. Actually, before we talk about WeWork, I want to talk about Mattress Mac. Do you know Mattress Mac? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Gallery Mattress Furniture. Mac, I'm totally guessing here. He's... Uh, he looks like a guy that's 75, a white guy in Houston. He, I always, when I hear the name, I think it's like some up and coming rapper that is like from the streets and also from Houston. And so You're I kind of wish. <laughs> yeah, that's one <laughs> and the same, right? So Mattress Mac owns furniture stores, which I guess is, is the name. And he frequently does these promotions to try and sell stuff where like, if any team in Houston has a playoff team, he'll be like, Hey, if they win the world championship, all the stuff you buy between this period is free. So rough example here, he might be like any mattress purchased in the next six months is free. If the Houston Astros win the world series, he's a huge sports fan. So he loves that. The community loves it because it's like this lotto ticket, right? It's like, Oh, I, I probably need furniture anyway, but man, I got this lotto ticket to root for my hometown team. Of course, how he defers his risk with all this inventory that he might have to give away is he bets on the team to win, right? <laughs> so there's this video. He For this one, the Astros just won the World Series, if you guys don't follow baseball. For this one, he had to call like three different large uh, sports brokerage and put million-dollar bets on these things. And everyone knows like it's Mattress Mac. I'll do this one deal. And the Astros won. So there's a video on Twitter right now of him with a little wheelbarrow and a backpack full of cash, literally taking $10 million in cash to his private jet. It's the greatest thing <laughs> yeah, ever. It's, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's so wonderful. 
um, ridiculous <laughs> at the same time. It's awesome. It's worth a watch. I mean, but like that's maybe he, maybe he is an up and coming rapper. You've enlightened me now. This is <laughs> he was he was wheelbarrowing that to, over to Jacob the jeweler to get his yeah, uh, his ice piece. Yeah. Oh man. All right. Here's a quote. We work with exit approximately 40 underperforming locations comprised of 41,000 workstations in the US and that's expected to occur this month in November. The reason this is interesting to me, I mean everyone's in cost cutting mode, why why do I care? WeWork was the hottest most talked about company in the world it seemed 3 years ago. Their founder blew up and we've talked about that. It's definitely come back to earth. If you look at share performance, it's absolutely terrible recently. But this is what scares me about growth stocks and especially early stage growth stocks, Dougals. Three years ago, when people were trying to buy this thing, the valuation didn't make any sense on the positive side. It was way overvalued. And the story was, oh, well, wait till like, you know, we're, we're burning cash to build a reputation and wait till we actually turn the profit spigot on. Oh, this thing's yep. going to be bigger than you could ever imagine. Yep. Never happened. They've, they've never made any money. In my opinion, they're never going to make any money. That's a little drastic, but like they're already in cost cutting mode. They never turned the profit spigot on. They just sold a story. A bunch of crazy people bought it. Now they lost their money in that investment and it it will continue to be unprofitable for the foreseeable future. It's kind of depressing. <laughs> it, it is. It is. I mean, I think I can't say this is foreseeable because you never know what happens with these businesses, but it's kind of like, oh, you know, I, th- I think that's like the reaction. It was like <laughs> everything, everything crashed, right? Like in a um, in glorious fashion the crash and then as you were mentioning it's like oh what a comeback story like what a turnaround i where would i where did i put the i put the emphasis in the wrong syllable there what a turnaround but anyway and then and then you kind of go oh like oh, that's it no, it's we work yeah no <laughs> so here's what i do i this is what i'll wrap with for today but i'm so curious if you do this as companies send me their communication they send this out to all customers. I'm not, uh, I'm not special. But if I get emails from a clothing company I like offering deep discounts, you know, if if I've followed a company for ten years and I've never seen discounts this great, that probably means they have an inventory problem. Late uh, the past six months, I've been getting all this stuff from WeWork. I mean, I, I've officed there just a few times, and it's like come back, and the deals kept getting better. It was like one month free, two months free. Come in for a free day. Come have some coffee for fun. It, 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 they were kind of telegraphing it, but I'm always trying to read between the lines of whatever messaging gets sent my way. And I certainly saw over the summer a lot of clothing brands doing deeper discounts than was normal because inventory levels were off. And and especially with WeWork, it was like, you guys really want me to come into the office. And I don't have any desire to come to the WeWork location. <laughs> Do you reply back? <laughs> no, thank you. No, thanks. And I just shorted your stock, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Does that uh, ever happen to you or am I the odd duck there? No, it's just you. That's just you. All right, perfect. Well, thank you, everybody. As we mentioned at the tippity top, listener mail, we love it. Skippydoogles at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast. We got skippydoogles.com, which is the one-stop shop for everything. So check it out and look forward to the Substack on Monday. Thanks, guys. 